Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening. What a splendid turnout, which goes to show that despite what the news might say, London can take it. (laughs) Okay? We're not going to be put off by that kind of thing at all. Um, Welcome to Word in Your Ear. Uh, How many people have been to Word in Your Ear before? Okay, reasonable showing. Uh, Those of you who are new may be intrigued and possibly even pleased to hear that our proud boast is we start early and we finish early because we know that most sensible people need to be looking at the inside of the lids by about 9.30. I love that expression. You always use that. Yeah, well, I think you invented it. (laughs) Looking at the inside of your lids. Anyway, our first guest this evening... uh, I'm going to start with with a story, actually, a personal story. Uh, when I was when I was merely middle aged rather than the ancient person you'd see before you now, I used to occasionally it fell to me to take um, car loads of of boys to school in the morning, and some of those boys would be quite young, and they'd be back in the back in the back of the car, fighting over the teenage mutant ninja turtles and other issues that meant a lot to them. And in the front of the car would usually be a comparatively mature 12-year-old who, who didn't engage me in conversation much at all because he usually had his nose inside a copy of Kerrang! or Empire magazine or something like that. And, and what I could glean from him about his musical tastes um, came down to the fact that he tended to like heavy rock and... As I I kind of met him occasionally over the years subsequently, his interest in heavy rock got even heavier. And uh, he he never never stepped away from it at all. And I thought, well, maybe, who knows, one day he will grow up to be a writer and he'll write a book called Heavy, How (laughs) Metal Changes the Way We See the World. Well, I'm here to tell you that this circumstance has actually come to pass. Amazingly... And he's here 
uh, this evening to tell us about it. Please welcome Dan Franklin. So, Dan, um, let's start at the beginning. You've got an anecdote quite near the beginning of, of, of your book, which is about your kind of journey into, into metal, into heavier and heavier music, which I suppose is, is what this book is about. Um, but where you start is, is with, some, uh, with some, some records that your, your dad brought home. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's true. Um, I was born in 1982. So in 1990, I was eight years old. Uh, and one day in 1990, my dad brought home two cassettes. One was uh, Simpsons Sing the Blues, and the other was Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. Simpsons Sing the Blues was for my younger brother, Nick, who's two years younger than me, and Appetite for Destruction was for me. And I was a bit jealous of the fact that I didn't get the Simpsons album. Right, yeah. Because in 1990, The Simpsons was the biggest thing going. Do the Bartman was number one. You know, it was a, a cultural phenomenon. And the Guns N' Roses album was a, a, curious, a curious thing to receive. But my dad said, uh, well, I've asked him about it since, and he said it was because Axl Rose reminded him of Robert Plant, and he thought I might enjoy it. Look, looking back, it's interesting because... I did start to listen to that Guns N' Roses album and used to go on in the car. I remember listening to Paradise City in the car on the way to school. Um, and I also remember looking at the sleeve, and I don't know if you remember this, but the sleeve to Appetite for Destruction has a very uh, controversial image in it, which is an illustration of what appears to be the aftermath of a rape by this robotic figure wearing a trench coat. And I remember looking at that and not really understanding it. And you were how old again? I was eight. Yeah. <laughs> good, good parenting here. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, you know, you don't know. They don't know. You don't open up the cassette. That's but that was, true. That's true. But that was, uh, you know, it was interesting because when you're eight and you're seeing something like that, you have a sense that, you know, it wasn't entirely clear what what had happened in this image. Um, but you knew that it was something, uh, something slightly other and illicit and different and dangerous in a sense. So when I was writing the book, uh, and I was asked to, you know, to think about basically more of the kind of personal mileposts mile into getting into heavier music, this was the obvious inception point for me. Um, but that didn't mean like instantly I was, you know, putting on Kiss and ACDC at home, aged eight. But it was certainly, I think, the start of, uh, of, of the journey. Incidentally, the Simpsons album is also heavy in its own way because it's very bluesy, right. especially all the Homer stuff. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, they're they're both great, both great albums. Uh, and but the, yeah, Appetite for Destruction was is where you start. Was the start, and then then you know about twelve years ago when uh, Axl Rose was touring the sort of illegitimate Chinese democracy lineup of Guns N' Roses, I went to see them at the O2 with Dad. Um, and that felt like a sort of nice gesture back to that moment when he, right. when he gave that to me. You've got another story near the end of the book, which also uh, concerns family and music yeah. listened to in a, in a car. Yeah. Uh, tell, us, tell us that story. Well, the, it only struck me last week when I was, uh, you know, thinking about the book a bit more, that the, the book is actually bookended by uh, motor, motor accidents, um, and it's something about heavy music where this kind of incident is really prominent in the mythology around it. 
Incidentally, I was born on the day that Randy Rhodes died, 19th of March, 1982. So it's quite interesting to have that synonymous with my birthday as well. But the end of the book concerns... Um, uh, the, you know, the, it's about the night that my son was born, which was October 30th, uh, 2015. And we had a CD in the car by a band called Typo Negative. Typo Negative uh, were from Brooklyn, New York. They were basically um, hardcore punk meets the Sisters of Mercy. Um, they're a fantastic band, and their lead singer uh, died, I think it was about 2011. Um, and he hadn't been afraid to share the fact that he had lots of issues with substance abuse. Um, but he used to, he's a fascinating figure. His name was Peter Steele. He used to be a parks and recreation officer in Brooklyn and very much sort of framed himself as the green man in this band. He had this amazing baritone voice. In 96, they released an album called October Rust. And that was one of the really big... When I was 14 when that came out, that album was is what remains one of the biggest albums in terms of my conception of heavy music. They A few years after that, they released the best of, and in their typically mordant humour, they called it the least worst of typo negative. <laughs> and we had a copy of the CD in the car, and it was this second-hand uh, sort of turquoise um, Ford Focus. And the, the colour of the... the, the the album covers of Typo Negative and then the, the colour that sort of designates them is this green. And the car, the car had this green. And me and my wife, B, used to love listening to that album. It was one of those kind of albums where she was into so it as well. Put on Typo Negative, darling. Let's put on some Typo Negative. Yeah. And there was a song on it called Love You to Death. Um, and it's essentially a, a love song. And there's a key line in it that's, am I good enough for you? Uh, and when I left the hospital uh, the night that my son was born, I drove back, and it was, you know, this autumnal day. Uh, it was very blustery and windy, and I was listening to that song, and that line, Am I Good Enough For You?, all of a sudden completely changed its significance for me. Nine months afterwards, my wife was driving in the car with my son, and they were hit by a lorry on a country lane in Hampshire, and it sort of impacted the side of the vehicle and wrote the car off. My wife had to be pulled out of her driver's seat. Um, and, you know, at the time she was sort of screaming, my baby, my baby. And, and um, I'm going to say the name of my son now. It's called Axel. <laughs> which is a, ho it's a, ho you know, a nod to that name, uh, obviously. Um, and, you know, sort of grimly, they'd been hit by a truck of a company that specializes in euthanizing horses, which sort of gave it a very macabre edge. Anyway, the car was a write-off. They were fine. They were cuts and bruises, and they were pretty shook up, but they were okay. But I was like, fuck, that car's got the CD in it. <laughs> <laughs> More I, importantly... Yeah. And I went on Amazon, and I looked up the value of it, and it was worth quite a lot of money as well. I was like, <laughs> so this has a lot of sentimental and actual value... I'm going to go and get it back. So I found out where the car was, the pound where the car was. It was about an hour and a bit drive, drive from my place. So on two successive days at about seven in the morning before trying to go into London to work, I went on a mission to get the sort of six CD changer out of the car. First time was unsuccessful. I needed two of those sort of uh, like metal implements to sort of pull it out. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So I went and bought that, went back the next day, still didn't work. 
So I went and looked amongst all these wrecks, wrecked cars and found a toolbox and found a spanner and something else. And I beat the shit out of that dashboard. And I eventually extricated the CD changer and brought it home and was able to, you know, take it apart and recover my precious type of negative CD, which I haven't listened to once <laughs> since I got it back. But you haven't even listened to it? After it's all the, that? Yeah, it's yeah. the thought that counts. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, yeah. It was actually, the, the truth of the matter was, I was like, I'm not going to let that, you know, asshole that almost killed, killed my family take steal that. Steal my album. Steal yeah. my album. Yeah. And um, it's funny because I've, you know, up until very, very recently... I've still, I'm still being very loyal to CDs. I don't think a lot of people probably come on this show and talk about loyalty to the CD format, but that was what I grew up with. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. listening to the Dismans. So, um, so yeah, I very much, I have like huge numbers of CDs which are growing increasingly redundant in my loft. But yeah, it, you know, that song meant a lot. That album meant a lot. Um, so I went on that mission, and and that you know, and it, it's that part of the book is a is a tribute to Peter Steele and his music and just an example of a way in which, um, you know, the kind of emotional intensity of heavy music uh, can play out in someone's experiences. Okay, let's, let's talk about your journey from the, uh, the near miss on the Simpsons album um, in, into, into heaviness. Uh, it, it, meatloaf is... Uh, yeah. Meatloaf 2. Yeah, Meatloaf, yeah. yeah. This is the theme that we're going to return to throughout this journey that you get into things, because of the way things are, second time around yeah. very often. Yeah. So Bad Out of Hell 2 was 1993, and I was 11. And I, uh, you know, I got that out. Obviously, uh, I Would Do Anything for Love was a massive number one for weeks and weeks and weeks, so you couldn't avoid it. But I got taken to see Meatloaf uh, by a friend, uh, a friend and his dad, and we, it was at Wembley Arena, uh, and we were, you know, the, the floor, the stalls were all seated, and we were in the fourth row, I think. What I loved about Milo from the start was his emotional sincerity. Uh, it's, all on the, it's all on the line with him. And then, of course, like seeing him live like that, in that sort of uh, full-on like theat theatricality of his performances, it sort of blew me away. Um, the amount of commitment, physical exertion, and the, the fact the band were rocking that hard... Um, really resonated with me. And then, you know, with something like Bad Out of the Hell, you've got all the tropes of heavy metal without it being heavy metal. You know, torn and twisted at the foot of a burning bike. You got it all there. So, so Meatloaf, I have a special place in my heart for Meatloaf. And we went to see him actually again that year at the Royal Albert Hall. I remember it was a bit disappointing because Prince Charles was there. It was for the <laughs> Prince's Trust. And he refused to swear on stage. I remember being a bit disappointed. But again, but again, I got exposed to him through the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I, I watched young. And, you know, watching him getting killed, uh, you know, by an axe, by Frankenfurter, you know. And that, that, that impacted. So, and then seeing him come up again in Fight Club later in the 90s, you know, he was some, he's someone I'm kind of invested in. Right, right. But I think the storytelling, if I was to sort of see where that sort of played out, I think the storytelling, the, the themes, the emotional sincerity of it, uh, the theatricality of it has a lot in common with a lot of heavy metal as well. So, so then, you, and then there's a Donington, is it? You, you, Donington? Start, you start, start going in your yeah. own right, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Donington. So, Donning so, how old are you when you go to this? Four, Fourteen. So Fourteen. This was, yeah. and who was on the bill at this one? Was so, this, this was. Pantera? This is like a really. Um, this is a really important festival in the history of metal music. Donington is 
you know, it's in Leicestershire, it's Donington Racetrack, Donington Park, Castle Donington. Uh, there's a castle there as well. Um, and since the early 80s, it was the, the sort of mecca, the Hall of Kings for metal artists. Um, and I traveled up with my friend Ash in a coach uh, to Donington in 96. It was in August then, it's now in June. Um, and it's been rebranded re as the Download Festival, which I always think is a terrible name for a metal festival. Um, but it was Monsters of Rock in 96, and it turned out to be the final Monsters of Rock. And it was headlined by Ozzy Osbourne and Kiss. Kiss had just started putting their makeup back on, and it was their sort of reunion tour. So again, another reunion. Um, but further down the bill, there was this sea change happening. Uh, and there were two bands, I'd say, with the really kind of key movers in that. One was called Fear Factory. Fear Factory released an album called Demanufacture in 1995. And that basically was music as form the Terminator 2 as formulated in industrial music. It introduced a couple of innovations into the metal sound, like a guitar and the drums were really locked in together. A lot of double bass drum, which is very rhythmically sort of, uh, you know, uh, the, riffs was in the, the riffs were in the rhythm of the music. And then vocally, there were these sort of harsh barking vocals and then for clean, melodious choruses. And that was a sort of innovation in the sound. But it sounded like a genre stepping into the future. It sounded very different. There was a sort of industrial keyboard sound as well in it and samples. And, um, and it sounded very fresh. And they were first on that day. And, it, you know, I remember it was sort of huge heaving crowd, massive response. <clears throat> and then later on in the day, uh, the New York hardcore band Biohazard played. Um, and just after they were on, there was an announcement from the main stage to say that a band called Korn were about to start on the second stage. And this is the, remains the only time I've seen people dust themselves down and then run up the hill <laughs> to the second stage. And I thought, what's this band Korn about? I didn't really know much about them at the time. But Korn, in case you don't know, were really the, the flag bearers for new metal. They wore tracksuits, Adidas tracksuits. The lead singer came, Jonathan Davis, played bagpipes during the set. They mangled nursery rhymes. They sang about being called a faggot, and they sang about child abuse. Uh, and they sort of created more of a sort of hip-hop approach to verses. The riffs were sort of, sort of strange sounds. They used the instrument a little like Tom Morello did in Rage Against the Machine. It was almost like using it as a keyboard and to sort of create this sort of melodic decoration in it. And then they had these really pounding, hard-charging uh, choruses and, uh, you know, the sort of substantive bit that really got the crowd moving. And you can see in the crowd of the footage in the day, people's hair was shorter. Uh, there was a sort of collision of tribes, really. I was going to say, so you were 14 at the time. So, that, you know, who's the standard Donington punter? at that time? Is it somebody 25 years old? Well, yeah, well, I think so. I mean, it was hard to... Everyone was much older. I remember feeling quite intimidated getting say. on that coach. But you make I, the point that there's no, no aggression, which is quite interesting. You're saying that if you go to a big Oasis gig, there's quite a lot of... I, well, I've always found it. metal crowds almost placid, yeah. Yeah. you know. I mean, there, there's a lot to sort of talk about in terms of mosh pits and the rules of that sort of controlled violence and sort of phys physicality and when that, what the kind of unspoken codes are and when the lines are crossed and someone gets punched for being out of order. And it's always quite interesting 
what the rules are. And as I got older and got physically stronger, you know, I had more of a sort of input into that yeah, than right. I did when I was being thrown around with a with my like lunch in a backpack on my back at age fourteen. <laughs> you know. Um, uh, the other band that played that day was Sepultura, and Sepultura with their Brazilian band, and they really kind of added a, a different sort of global uh, flavor to metal at the time. They dro they drove a lot of change in the way that they wrote their songs, and they brought a lot of the tribal influences from, um, you know, their homeland into the music as well. So you're, you're starting to notice kind of new generations coming through, but you you know you you're still fascinated by the. The early generations, we're looking at a poster for a, for a Black Sabbath, um, well, Milton Keynes Bowl. What year is that? This is, this is 98. Um, so I, I was you just... You make a brilliant point about the evolution of the sound of Black Sabbath. Yeah. Involving the accident that I think... Uh, yeah, well, yeah. you know, the famously Tony Iommi had his you know, the fingertips uh, of his fretting hand, two of them were cut off, sliced off in a machine pressing accident in a factory in Birmingham, and he had to make home homemade thimbles of melted down washing washing up liquid bottles, and that meant that he had to slacken his strings to get a bit more purchase. His solos, so his on the one hand, his soloing style got faster, but his riffing style got slower. And that's really where you start to see, and then playing through the distortion, like really like amped up distortion. Really but, but it, you know, I think Black Sabbath are interesting. Like, you know, it's 50 years since their first album. So this genre is now at that milestone. Um, and they invented heavy metal, but in a sense, I think heaviness kind of invented them because it was pushing through a lot of the hard rock bands in the late 60s and early 70s. You can start to hear it in lots of bands but it found its kind of main channel through Black Sabbath's music. And in the 90s, um, basically Ozzy Osbourne was having trouble getting gigs at the mainstream alternative festivals in the States, in Lollapalooza and so on. So he started OzFest, and Sharon Osbourne started OzFest as a way of um, a, you know, providing him a platform, essentially. But at the same time, all these bands were coming through going, you know, from the grunge period onwards, saying, well, Black Sabbath are hugely influential, but they'd been unfashionable for a long time. But everyone was talking about the sort of the first five albums that were released in the 70s. So this was, I think, yeah, Bill Ward was, I think Bill Ward played at this gig, but he also had a heart attack. It might have been at this one, and they, they had to get Mike Borden in instead. So I definitely saw them play with Bill Ward, but they have a very difficult relationship with Bill Ward. And they sort of excluded him from the band for their final run. That was a few. But it's few amazing. Years ago. Thirty years post heart attack, these bands have <laughs> only, only just wound yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, they? Yeah. But you know, so for me, it was it, 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 you know getting into them was it was interesting because it's coming to this music through first through all the bands they influenced. But Black Sabbath are you know, it, amazing band you listen to as even as a teenager in the nineties. Um, so I'm going to. This is a kind of unforgivable dad question. This is explain, granddad question. Explain Slipknot to me. Yeah. No. So I think it's a fair question. It's a per, it's they a, appear to be kind it's of not even a question. Yeah. It's a they plea. Had, they yeah. were described as an army of psychotic mutants when they came out. Um, you know, they Slipknot were were really ingenious for a few reasons. Well, we talked about new metal. So new metal in the late nineties was was you know it was peaking. Its popularity was peaking. You had bands like Limp Bizkit in two thousand and one got to the number one in the singles chart in the UK. 
Um, and really, you know, there was a big, uh, the main metal label at this time was called Roadrunner. And Slipknot, I think, saw an opportunity to do, to take this kind of metal, which was very much about primal emotional aggression, and to just take it all the, to its logical extreme. So you start with the, with nine members. Um, little like the Wu-Tang Clan also have nine members. I think it's a similar philosophy. In reality, there's five core members. There's two guitar players, a bass player, a drummer, and a singer. But you have a turntablist, you have a guy doing samples, which is still a little bit unsure what he does. Uh, but you have two percussionists and the DJ. And they're the sort of mayhem on the stage. And it really centers around uh, Clown. Um, and uh, he, he is the sort of mastermind behind the band. And they're from Iowa, so they're from the Midwest. They have a dim view of where they've grown up. Um, and they came out, their, their debut was released in 99. It was a sort of instant smash hit. And they did something with the masks, which I think has is, is been done many times, glam, glam rock onwards. Marilyn Manson also took advantage of this which was they sort of it created a sort of shocking theatricality about what they were doing, but they were also able to just inhabit these different persona. And in doing so, they were able to, to kind of do whatever they wanted on stage. And in those early gigs, they, they, it was genuinely dangerous what they were doing, setting themselves on fire, jumping into the crowd. People had their backs broken because they were having members of the band land on them. Um, <laughs> But th th there's interesting, in the book, I make a point about um, Joseph Grimaldi, who's the pantomime cloud, clown, Regency clown. Um, and there's this interesting thing. He used to come on and say, uh, here we are at the beginning of performances. That was one of his sort of catchphrase, catchphrases. And it was interesting to me that there was a pantomime clown. And then the beginning of their second album, the first thing that Corey Taylor says is, here we go again, motherfuckers. You know, that's like the first thing that comes out of his mouth. So I saw that parallel with them and that they're really almost in that pantomime tradition, like sort of playing out this kind of drama on stage and everyone sort of eating it up. But when their second album came out, you know, they went to number one in the album charts when it came out here. Last year, they released a new album that knocked Ed Sheeran off the top of the album charts by 12 copies. <laughs> uh, um, so, so there, Slipknot's popularity is it remains in that twenty-year period undimmed. Twenty but, years. Well, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, the, be the beauty of the masks, isn't it? Yeah. Just kiss of just. And the masks evolve, and there's obviously stories behind the masks. But they, for me, are also a significant band because when that second album, Iowa, came out, it came out two weeks before the World Trade Center attacks. So I always associate that album with, with that period in September and sort of clear skies in September. I often start listening to it. And after the attacks happened, it was a very confusing time, especially for heavy music. You know, it's almost as if there was something a little obscene and too much about the level of that kind of rage and anger being expressed in metal music compared to the general grief yeah. uh, that was being felt, especially in America. And there was this famous fake band song list at the time. And another new metal band, System of a Down, had a, had a song on that called Chop Suey because it referred to suicide. But there was an incident, which I write about in the book, where they were playing in L.A. I think, in, you know, weirdly, they had a tour lined up 
called Pledges of Allegiance, which they'd named before this had happened. And so again, that sort of reframed what that was about, that they were about to go on a US tour under that banner. And there was an incident in the November in, um, in LA where they have a moment, if you've ever seen them live, where they play a song called Spit It Out, and there's a moment where they get all the crowd to crouch down and then to jump up at a key moment, like the climax of the song, and it's their sort of big party piece. Though weirdly, they cut it from the set in their last tour, but it's, and it's been imitated a lot. A lot of, I've seen other bands and people do it. And when they played it that, that day in, um, they were telling people to come down, come down, and people in the, who were seated areas were rushing down into the floor area, and the fire marshal said, I'm gonna pull the plug on the gig because this is getting unsafe. And Corey Taylor, the singer was quick on his feet and he decided to hold a minute silence for 9-11 and as a way of calming and getting everyone back to where they were going. So, and the front cover of the Kerrang! where that story is reported is, it says sort of Slipknot on tour at war. And they just sort of seem to have this, they seem to, you know, capture that moment and sort of almost channel it on stage, the sort of sense of, uh, you know, aggression and uh, it's acute sense, I think, in America of being under attack and, uh, you know, their sense of being under emotional attack, I think, kind of really, really worked for them there. Do you, do you think any of these bands feel slighted by the fact that, you know, whenever there's some kind of gathering of, uh, of the great and the good of American music to sing some anthem post 9-11 or whatever, these bands never seem to They're be represented. Is that, is, that, is that the case? And if it's the case, are they cross about it, do you think? Well, I think the one band that does kind of do the national anthem thing is Metallica, you know. Right. They're, they're the sort of... They're the you, Rolling Stones of the... Well, not the Rolling Stones, probably. But they're the 100 million-plus selling right. act, aren't they? And I think they, they will appear at baseball games and have... I don't, I don't think they're a particularly patriotic band. But if no, I wasn't really talking about patriotism. Yeah. It's just the idea of, uh, you know, when the great music family gathers, <laughs> there will be Paul McCartney and there will be mm -hmm. Lady Gaga and yeah. there will be you know, Stormzy. Yeah. But it, these bands might not be there. Is that the case? Or am I, I missing something? Well, no, I think you might, you might get someone like Dave Grohl, like a kind of crossover okay. figure, I think, who has his feet in But he's fairly both. tame, isn't he, really? Well, you know, Dave Grohl's got cred. No, well, no yeah, sure. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with Dave Grohl. You know, but he he's, he's a heavy dude. You he's know. not frightening anybody. No, no. But the, you know, these guys. I think you know it's difficult for a band that you know plays the the sort of music they play. They inhabit their world so fully that stepping outside of it is is difficult. You know, it's all or nothing. Right, really. right. You yeah. go to a Slipknot show and that's it. You're there not, are, it's an alternative universe, yeah. isn't it? Like they can't concede that the other universes exist, yeah. kind of thing. There's only one other... There's one time that they've done a cover version on stage. They played Beastie Boys Sabotage with Korn, and that's when I went to see them about five years ago. Right. They, 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 talking about... So you get into, into some extraordinarily ex extreme stuff in this book, you know. Um, you know, and quite kind of arty stuff, aren't you? You're, you're drawing serious parallels, you know, that haven't been drawn with heavy metal before. Is that fair to say? And I, I try, yeah. Explain this group. So this is Sun. Um, Sun are actually, I think, where, where metal and 
yeah, I guess what you'd call the artier end of things, performance art kind of meet. You know, they they are, in case you don't know, Sun, Sun are named after a particularly powerful kind of amplifier, which was the preferred amplifier of the groups in the 60s and 70s who didn't have the benefit of playing with PA systems. Sun essentially put on hooded robes like monks, and there's two core members who play guitar, and they they have often up to about 15 amplifiers around them, and it's almost, with the cabinets, it's almost like they're sort of in a, in a Stonehenge formation. Um, and, and what they're about really is not so much kind of melody or riffs, but frequency and drone, and they play phenomenally loud. Um, and, and adjust that to the resonance of the building they're in. Yeah, they like to tune to the resonant frequency of the building they're playing in. So, well, I interviewed Julian Cope, um, which is, yeah, a crossover with Pete's book. The, maybe the one crossover, serious crossover. Julian Cope is this fascinating figure because he immerses himself in underground, the heavy underground as well. Uh, and he played, he collaborated with them on a, on a song called My Wall, which is about one's dyke, which is an earthwork that runs towards Bristol through Wiltshire. And he played with them in a, in a, in a sort of Victorian era theatre. And they were tuning to the resonant frequency of the theatre and the plaster was falling off the ceiling. <laughs> and when I went to see them at the Royal Festival Hall, uh, again, it was about five years ago, they'd had some problem in the day, like sound checking, because stuff was like falling off the, the edifice. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, they were supported by these incredible, like, Le ne I think they were Nepalese throat singers. And these guys sat in a row and were just, it was, it was amazing. But they, and they co-opted uh, the, lead, the, the lead singer of Mayhem, the black metal band. And he does he, uh, sort of vocals on their stuff. He didn't on their last tour, but he, he did when I went to see them. at um, And it was David Burns' Meltdown they played. So they sort of deconstructing metal so and connecting it to more sorts, primordial. All sorts of things can happen in heavy music. It's not, it's not a dead end of any kind. There's as much can be done there as can be done anywhere else. I was talking to a guy last night at a gig, and he was like, oh, "He said to me, all the metal's been found. Well, go on. We're, we're just sort of recombining it and finding out all the different kind of." Uh, you don't agree. Uh, I, d I don't think that's like I, I would never say you, know, you should never kind of say all the all the music's being found. I think that's like not nonsense. But I think you know, but it's very exploratory. You have on the one end, you know, sort of Guardian approved Sun, right. you know, um, all the way through to Grindcore on the other hand. But it's interesting where it sort of pokes its head through. You know, I remember listening. I used to try and catch the Radio One Rock Show when it was. Marianne Hobbs, and he was on at midnight, and John Peel was on just before, and John Peel would always end his show with some like serious grindcore just before the rock show, and it's almost like he had to sort of get in there with five minutes of, I'm going to play something heavier than you're going to play yeah, for the next two hours. Yeah, absolutely, he would. Very and he used to play Mortician, you know, yeah. <laughs> really sick stuff, brilliant, but he was always an early champion, and obviously, you know, much... He had a huge, you know, taste but in You've still got a place in your heart for Iron Maiden. But a newly one place in my heart. Because when I was getting into this music in the 90s, Iron Maiden were in the doldrums. Bruce Dickinson wasn't in the band. Adrian Smith had left the band. So it's two of their most important elements. Um, and he made a comeback in 2000. The thing with Iron Maiden is, 
how heavy are Iron Maiden, I guess, compared to a lot of the stuff that was coming out in the 90s? Like, sonically, they just weren't as ferocious. But they were doing something different, you know. They were sort of creating, again, you know, very good at sort of storytelling, what Bruce Dickinson calls theatre of the mind. Um, And it's a very uh, involved, uh, epic style of songwriting. And I've really come to appreciate appreciate them in the last, I'd say, you know, five years particularly. Uh, And I saw them a couple of years at the O2 Arena, and they're doing their sort of Legacy of the Beast tour. They tend to do a a new album. If they've got a new album, they'll tour the album, and then they'll come back and do some formulation of a greatest hit show, either based on a previous album, or in this case, on a. it was actually based on a video game they put out. But the video game was about each era of the band. So they sequenced the set. And they sort of put them together thematically. And the strongest bit of the set was the first 40 minutes, which was all the war songs. So you have Aces High um, and Where Eagles Dare. And I I write quite a lot about Where Eagles Dare because it's sort of a brilliant example of their craft, if you like. You know, they basically, Bruce Dickinson, like, it's it's basically the story of the film and the Alistair MacLean novel that accompanies the film, you know, starring Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. Bruce Dickinson comes in, he sort of sets the scene, the band play for about four minutes, then he comes in and ends the story. And it's sort of a brilliant example of how they put songs together, really, that sort of storytelling in their music. But the interesting thing about Iron Maiden is they are one of Britain's most successful cultural exports. Uh, A few years ago, when I was at Brixton Academy, I asked the merchandise people there, I said, when is when was the biggest night for merchandise here? And they said it was when they did the tribute, uh, they did fundraising nights for Clive Burr, who was Iron Maiden's former drummer. And they did three nights at Brixton Academy and they said they just uh, tens and tens of thousands of pounds and had people crowd surfing to the front of the merch queue. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's the other interesting thing when you go to an Iron Maiden shirt, everyone's wearing Iron Maiden shirts. And, And they, you know, what they've done so brilliantly and they'd say... You know, Bruce Dickinson does corporate speaking gigs where he talks about, you know, talking to businesses, saying... He's such an unlikely heavy metal star, isn't he? Yeah, well, he's, you know, he's a sort of renaissance man, you know, really properly, you know, Olympic-level fencer. He's a a commercial jet pilot. Jet pilot. I guess he's sort of secretly... There is a wonderful documentary made about Iron Maiden. It must have been five years ago or longer, where they interviewed the fans. And uh, and, uh, they said, you know, what is it, do you think, appeals to you about Iron Maiden they said their individuality and every single one of these fans was wearing a black t-shirt but, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know that's only yeah. like the fans of any yeah you know you, whatever any band but the same thing would apply but yeah. it's particularly funny in that case I just I just want to ask you that this is my favorite we're looking now what is still my favorite heavy metal photograph. This was taken for sounds, I think, probably in the late 70s, maybe early 80s, by Ross Halpin. And it features Rob Halford of Judas Priest, um, you know, wearing full kind of leather gear outside what appears to be a council house somewhere in the Midlands. And what is it about the Midlands that that's makes it so important in, in the kind of heavy metal story? Because you do talk about this in the book. Well, I think that, you know, the received wisdom is that it, the, it's the industrial 
nature of the Midlands means that bands came out that literally sounded like the environment they were growing up in. They, they created a sound that was heavy machinery. Um, in, the, in the case of Judas Priest, it's interesting because they really, you know, in, in refining this look and bringing the kind of leather to it, they they did something interesting with the audience where, you know, I interviewed K.K. Downing, their sort of founding guitarist for the book. And he said he was on a quest for a music that wasn't there. Um, and his background is very harrowing, actually. He had a very abusive father. Uh, he, you know, he grew up in a very sort of strange, almost kind of suffocating environment where he wasn't allowed to get out. His father was very paranoid about his kids getting ill. Um, so actually, it's like, you can say, oh, metal sounds like factories and so on, but it's almost like more, I think, of a response to the conditions that a lot of these people lived in, you know, very difficult lives. And, you know, I think a lot of the escapism of metal and the sort of full-onness of the sound comes from reaching for something elsewhere. Um, and, you know, you know, in the case of Judas Priest, when they came up with the leather thing as well, it was almost like taking their fandom into an, an underground world. And I compare it to what happens in Cruising, the William Freakin film, where Al Pacino is an undercover cop going around the heavy leather scene, as his commanding officer calls it, in New York. It's a similar thing. It's we're going to take you to this world and we're, we're going to look the part and take you there. And it's, we're going to transport you out of these day-to-day -day lives, which are very difficult. I got asked an interesting question the other day at another event about whether this was something to do with World War II and the impact and sort of sons trying to show their fathers that they kind of understood, <laughs> trying to connect yeah. with them. You know, and it's like, we're, you know, I always thought war pigs is interesting because it's, it sounds like a war. You know, we're going to sound like, a, we're going to try and give you back something because there's an emotional disconnect with yours and well, our generation. Some of these, you know, members of Black Sabbath probably remember bombing. I don't know, they, I don't know, are they that old? They possibly are. You know, and you see it again later in grunge, I think, with the, the Vietnam, the sort of children of the Vietnam generation. Yeah. Like, very directly in a, the Alice in Chains song, Rooster, you know, he's talking, he's basically relaying, Jerry Cantrell is relaying the experiences of his father in Vietnam. And I speculate in the book because a lot of these bands were very like heavily into hard drugs, like heroin, and really struggling. And it's almost like whether they're performing a kind of strange penance to try and sort of get themselves in that sort of degraded and traumatized state as a way of reaching out to closed-off parents. I think that's just a really interesting... And I think you see it in the sort of psychogeography of Birmingham as much as maybe in Seattle... But it, I spoke to a, a music scholar for the book, John Dethridge, who told me that his, his father set up a high opera society in Birmingham. And they, had a, you know, they, had a, they, were, they worked with cars and they worked with heavy metals. And I think that's why you know, opera is similarly elevated music. And I think that's why you know, so often metal and opera kind of speak to each other for people. That's the next book. <laughs> Metal and opera. That, I've given you that idea for nothing. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Franklin. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.